everybody. Welcome to Scraps. We're your podcast that seeks to explore the stories behind the people in science and innovation. I'm Jojo Platt with my co-host and co-producer, Arun Sridhar. We can guarantee you, our listeners, that while there are many podcasts out there, none of them explore the stories of the people who work in the science and innovation like we do. We take pride in being able to bring the stories of the, of the people and the the work that they do to drive innovation. Remember, we're scraps with a K. It's not a typo. It's sparks spelled backwards. We want to give a special shout out to our listeners, a few of them who have been super loyal to us. Uh, We have listeners from all over the world, and we remain grateful. Uh, We have listeners from Sharjah in the UAE, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Rune in South Holland, Quebec in Canada, Delhi and Coimbatore in India, and all sorts of places all over the U.S., from Florida to Washington State, California to Rhode Island, and we want to thank you for your loyal support. Please help us by spreading the word about the podcast. Um, Share it over email, WhatsApp, Badger. Um, Badger your friends, colleagues, and contacts to take a listen. And we do this for you, so that's our only kick. And Arun, I'd like you to take over from here. Jojo, thank you. Uh, Today's episode is part two of our diversity and inclusion series in science. And as we mentioned last week during our interview with Anila Chutta, most people talk about diversity and inclusion in a very formal way, um, sometimes in jargon, uh, but that's not us. That's not you and I. Uh, We spoke of Anil's personal journey about how an immigrant's view get shaped by the good, bad, and the ugly that they experience in life and how that outlook might actually make them approach a topic very differently to the inhabitants of the country that they ultimately migrate to. But today, we're going to take a slightly more nuanced view. It is nuanced because the person that we are going to talk to is a Latino and is going to share a m- more concrete steps about what he's taking on the uh, on the issue. He hails from Puerto Rico and moved to mainland US and did his bachelor's at UMass Amherst, MS in electrical engineering from Stanford and MBA from Stanford Business School. He cut his teeth with Eli Lilly in the pharmacological business before moving to uh, the business of science, as I like to call it, with Morgan Thaler Ventures and then became the VP and founding uh, founder at Lightstone Ventures. I knew him uh, and I got to know him very personally when he interviewed in for the, for becoming a partner at the GSK's Action Potential Venture Capital Fund back in 2014, a fund that is solely focused on bioelectronic medicine companies. And little did I know at the time that I would end up having some amazing conversations, lovely interactions, and I even have the notoriety of of working with them in a small honorary capacity for some of the investments that they might have made in the past. And I got to have a glimpse of how uh, an investment business within a corporate venture capital fund dedicated to bioelectronic medicines actually worked. Um, It'll be fantastic conversation with him today because we will get to hit on some really transformational companies in the area. And a small spoiler, we're going to play a little game with Juan Pablo around his companies. Uh, it's a reverse stake on how a partner would actually sell his investment rationale to the investment committee. So at least you get to hear um, a VC partner's kind of view on his portfolio companies. And on top of all of this, recently he became a founding board member of a fantastic initiative called his Latinx VC. 
with growing realization of diversity in business, our guest today has stayed close to his roots and is seeking to help others like him who want to have the same opportunities as him. And Latinx VC's mission is to connect, engage, and foster the Latinx VC ecosystem. And it also seeks to be the central and the definitive resource for all Latinx VCs. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Juan Pablo Mas. And we're going to have a very lively conversation both about bioelectronic medicines and about the diversity and inclusion topic through his work through uh, Latinx VC. Welcome. Yes, thank you, Arun. Thank you, Jojo. I'm excited to be here. You guys have been doing a terrific job with this podcast and uh, you know, just honored to have been invited on. Thanks for coming on. So I, I think Arun set it up pretty nicely. We're going to put you on the spot and, and have you do a reverse pitch for us and kind of walk through. Um, you were definitely, um, APVC was one of the early investors in Setpoint. Um, at a point when bioelectronic medicine was still probably called electroceuticals, um, which is a personal pet peeve. But um, tell us what what um, what attracted you to Setpoint. Sure, and Setpoint's probably an anomaly in our portfolio in the sense that it was the first. Um, so it was actually one that was uh, done with Action Potential in collaboration with some of the other venture entities at GSK. Um, so Imran Ebba, my partner, was at the fund when that. Uh, investment was made. I was actually sitting on the other side, already an investor in the company. Morgan Thaler Ventures was one of the, uh, was the founding uh, investor in the seed and incubated the company. Jim Broderick was fundamental on that with uh, Kevin Tracy and and various others. Um, So I was, as part of Morgan Thaler Ventures, uh, would occasionally observe the board there and got to know Imran and got to know the GSK team, um, you know, from board interactions uh, probably a year before uh, I joined Action Potential, but fundamentally, you know, in terms of what attracted APVC, um, you know, it sort of is the quintessential bioelectronic medicine, uh, you know, that GSK and the the community uh, of folks around the, the bioelectronic initiative sort of um, uh, might have described, right? It's a fundamentally new mechanism of action to treat a uh, chronic disease that's um, sort of underserved by existing molecular medicines and um, where, you know, there's opportunity to directly stimulate a nerve with an implant, uh, in, you know, in a way that um, can be dosed, you know, daily, like a traditional, um, you know, medicine. And, you know, as a micro stimulator could eventually become um, less and less invasive already is r- rather less invasive, invasive than traditional vagus nerve stimulators. Um, but the ability to treat rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory diseases um, with, with, uh, with a medical device was effectively, you know, uh, very much en- encompassed the long-term vision that I think GSK and Bioelectronics had for the field. Yeah, that's fantastic one, Pablo. And I just saw uh, just now a post that said that uh, Setpoint had just raised $64 million for uh, for its pivotal trial at this point of time through a preferred stock option. So that's something, it's very timely, and I'm grateful for you to talk us through about your investment in Setpoint. The next one is Axon Therapies. Uh, and we go from rheumatoid arthritis to a very different therapeutic area. So what does Axon Therapies do? So Axon Therapies uh, is a company that was incubated out of uh, Howard Levin, Mark Gelfand's uh, incubator in New York called Caridia. And um, 
we got to know the Critia team historically through even involvement uh, in RDN and other renal denervation, uh, another renal, renal denervation um, approach. And Coridia is has been stealth uh, in the past, but has recently even published on some of uh, their data in, in the treatment of heart failure. Um, so Coridia is a company that's, um, you know, we think has a, a, an amazing approach. May in fact actually treat the uh, underserved uh, HFPF condition, um, and you know is in clinical trials. Um, not not very open exactly about what they are, how they're doing, what they're doing, but. You know, we're really excited about the, the clinical data and, and success to today. To my partner Imran Eba um, led that investment. Uh, you know, really at the stage where it was concepts uh, on a whiteboard, um, trying to determine from a slew of different bioelectronic approaches that we worked with that team um, to refine and 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 you know rack, uh, stack rank the opportunities uh, that could be developed out of that incubator. Yeah, and for the listeners, HEFPEF stands for Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction. And uh, while the view and what is transformational about this particular uh, company is that they are actually exploring uh, a novel kind of neuromodulation method uh, to um, treat heart failure with preserved ejection fraction because that is a very distinct uh, patient population to the traditional view of heart failure where the heart reduces in function. Here, the heart's kind of ejection um, fraction, as they call it, or the amount of blood that it pumps out every minute is maintained, so it's preserved, but the patients still experience breathlessness whenever they exercise, etc. So that's why, uh, and all the things that works in the traditional heart failure or reduced ejection fraction does not work in the preserved ejection fraction. So that's what makes this particular company's proposition very, very unique. And uh, thank you for sharing that, Juan Pablo. And actually, your your definition of HEFPEF wasn't just for the listeners. It was for me, too. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Thanks, Arun. Um, which brings us to our next one, which is your first wearable, I believe. It's Cala Health, and there's some badass women associated with Cala, starting with Kate Rosenbluth, who we've had on the show before, um, one of my best friends, Erica Ross, who's a dynamic woman, and they've brought in Renee Ryan. So tell us about Cala. Yeah, Cal is also one that I certainly have been tracking for a long time. When I was at Lightstone Ventures, we um, I worked with Kate's husband, who was at Versant Ventures, Mike Rosenbluth, who's gone on to to be an operator and an entrepreneur himself. But got to know Kate as she was coming out of the biodesign program, and uh, as, as your listeners have heard in her podcast, um, you know, sort of a, a a moment in when she identified this as an opportunity, and we. Um, weren't able to invest while I was at Lightstone. Um, but, you know, when Kate was raising the Series B after, in fact, Renee Ryan had invested in the Series A, um, we, we we got very excited about it. They had clinical data. Um, you know, the idea that you can treat a movement disorder um, uh, from with transcutaneous uh, neural stimulation uh, with a novel mechanism as well, but one that, you know, could be uh, could be rooted in, in sort of validated um science you know for instance they have uh, in that case data that that shows the vim region of the brain which is the dbs target for a central tremor um active during stimulation uh you know at the wrist which is to us sort of helped connect the neural circuit and and um you know we felt uh transcutaneous or wearable stimulation in fact opens up the market to earlier stage patients who may not be looking to elect very invasive craniotomy brain surgery for a DBS system. 
but still suffer from a condition and aren't properly served um, or, or tolerate the existing uh, drugs that are really used off-label generic drugs historically and, and, and you know, aren't uh, quite amenable to lifestyles. Um, so that being the first indication, um, a, a, a market, I think, nine or 10 times larger than Parkinson's disease and prevalence. And, um, you know, just something that we all know, people with essential tremor, uh, you know, something that really got us excited about uh, Cala. And, and thankfully, Lightstone Ventures, in fact, my old firm led the round that we were a part of. Um, so it sort of was getting the band back together in that regard. And, and to your point, the team and um, the strong uh, female leadership at that company has just been, you know, a pleasure to watch and be a part of. And uh, I think there's a lot of excitement in store for the company right now, actually, just um, having received some pretty important uh, new information, which I'm trying to remember if it's been disclosed or not, but some good reimbursement information, I'll just say, uh, has come to light lately, which I think will accelerate the commercialization here shortly. Yeah. One thing about that Series B that caught my attention and I loved it was I think it was uh, when you closed Series B, maybe third quarter 2019, um, that series was oversubscribed the very same week that Elon Musk was closing a series that was undersubscribed. Not a lot of people mention that, but I, I like to bring that up every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk. To, I'll talk to Alan about that next time I chat with him. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. So now we move from California to Australia, uh, where your next investment uh, was, uh, or not the next, another next company that we're going to talk about is Saluda Medical. Yes, Saluda Medical, uh, which has developed a closed loop uh, neuromodulation system for simulation of the spinal cord to treat chronic pain, back and leg pain. Um, you know, I got to know that company. Actually, there's a theme here you'll, I'm, I'm starting to see, but I got to know John Parker and Greg Plamondon and the founding team uh, at Saluda back in my Morgan Thaler days as well, when they were really just building first um, EPGs or external pulse generators to to, to evaluate their closed loop algorithm and, and uh, hardware in patients for the first time. Um, you know, uh, them, they're being in Sydney and a lot of investors experience this, but, you know, a little bit of a higher hurdle sometimes to invest overseas just from proximity, especially in the earliest days of company formation. Um, most investors like to be closer by. Uh, and, you know, following their progress, uh, their phase two data uh, with their fully implantable system in, in chronic pain, we were just blown away by the uh, impact that it had. And just in so many regards, not just on traditional primary endpoints for pain trials, but also in secondary endpoints and quality of life, sleep, et cetera. And, you know, the what got us excited was certainly the first indication in pain, but also just this as a platform, you know, closed loop uh, technology as a platform, in essence, the first time you can observe activity of a nerve that you're stimulating and not just, uh, and, and in the case of mixed nerve bundles or, or the spinal cord, you see various nerve types uh, and the signature response so that, that, you know, can be tuned via stimulation parameters to get an optimal response. Um, so they're, first approach was to avoid uh, overstimulation and understimulation, which is more of, uh, you know, monitoring of amplitude of an ECAP uh, evoked compound action potential, you know, but in, in terms of the types of nerves that uh, can be optimized, I think there's tons of room for opportunity there. And frankly, I think when you think about pipeline extension into new indications, a lot of companies, um, you know, when I think about companies like uh, Nevro or 
uh, other uh, uh, companies that are getting into other indications, you you put the device and the therapy on a new nerve, you don't know what to look for. You don't necessarily have a lot of feedback until you get to a clinical endpoint, maybe a biomarker if you're going after an indication that has one. And you know that um, might be the first time you understand if it's working or not. Uh, you know, and, and, and it may take getting into a human patient, really, frankly, to, to know that um, with closed loop, you know, you can tie the science, the theoretical physiology or the, the theoretical mechanism to the physiology, measure it, record it, even optimize um, how it's being delivered prior, earlier on in the development cycle. So I think it's just massively important and sort of the applications are, um, you know, unless and they've had a, they had a traditional, sorry, they had a very successful um Pivotal trial that has now been published uh, and, and increasing endpoints. So we're really excited about closed loop uh, as a concept. Okay, so that brings us to CBRX. CBRX, exactly. Uh, CBRX, you know, uh, is a company that we got to know um, when um, Morgan Thaler was an investor in Ardian, uh, you know, certainly at a time when there were multiple approaches to treating hypertension. So at the time they were viewed a bit more as sort of a competitive approach uh, to what renal denervation was being developed for. But um, we, when it came to action potential, we saw their, also their phase two data in uh, heart failure. And, um, you know, was, we're also similarly blown away uh, by the, the impact uh, in, in patients with heart failure with a very well-designed study. The company had breakthrough designation uh, at the time, one, I think the first or one of the first companies with breakthrough designation um, granted by the FDA. Uh, and, you know, we wanted to take a, a run at the pivotal trial to see how this therapy for what's really a novel uh, approach to stimulate a baroreceptor to, to uh, and Arun knows this better than I do, but the ability to modulate sympathetic nervous system and uh, heart cardiovascular function through a evolutionarily uh, developed sensor uh, to the you know mechanoreceptor in the in, in the carotid uh, body to to modulate to, to treat heart failure, hypertension, and a variety of other conditions as well. Um, so we got we we joined the syndicate there. Um, and Gilda Healthcare came in alongside us. And since then, they've had a successful primary endpoint uh, and and will continue their pivotal trial, have an FDA approval, and are beginning to commercialize a therapy um, and also receiving breakthrough designation for some of their pipeline indications for subsequent uh, trials that will be run. So it's a really exciting time for that company as well. And it caters to the 51% of the heart failure patients who are currently underserved. So I think that's the magic number that I think in some of the marketing material that CVRX has actually used in terms of defining their unmet need in heart failure, which this is a traditional heart failure with reduced ejection fraction that they are trying to target and improve the outcomes of uh, in that population. So uh, definitely something that uh, people should look up and the company's name is CVRX. So the next one on the list here um, that you've invested is Presidio Medical, which is a very, very, very interesting company. Tell us more about that. <laughs> you set me up here for a tough one because there's very little the company is talking about uh, in terms of what they are, are doing still. They're in the very earliest stages. They have mentioned that they are developing a therapy for um, chronic pain, uh, you know, but fundamentally we got excited by 
number one, the people involved. So uh, Michael Ackerman and Ken Wu are people we've known for a long time. Uh, both came out of the biodesign program and I interacted with them there. Uh, we got to know Michael through Oculeve when we uh, tried to invest in the company uh, for chronic dry eye, but the company got swiped up, uh, acquired in the midst of that fundraising by uh, Allergan. Um, but we have always just been really impressed with those founders. And um, as Michael and team were thinking about what to do next, we were bouncing ideas off of them and said, let's try and start something. And, um, you know, the, the concept and the sort of fundamentally new approach to uh, nerve modulation that they are working on, I think has broad applications. Um, you know, it could, could open up a variety of new uh, spaces in neuromodulation that have never really been tapped before. Um, and so, yeah, they, they are early. We, that one we, was very much about the people and the concept. And, um, you know, we will see kind of what the future looks like. Hopefully there's more I can talk about the next time I'm on the show. But uh, basically it's, it's, it's hard, to, um, hard to go wrong if you're betting on people you really uh, have a ton of faith in and, and enjoy working with. And it's a pleasure to work with those guys. It's, yeah, it's if I can do the honors one, Pablo, at least based on publicly available knowledge that I can share from being in the area, I think the way you think about it is that nerve signals or signals in the nerve, electrical impulses can go up and down. And either of them can cause disease because there is a general tone that is maintained in a nerve to for for normal function. And uh, the way to think about Presidio is that it's the Bose noise cancelling headphones for the nerve. And the technology behind that is what APVC has invested in. So that's a fantastic company that is sure to create some waves in the future. So thanks for sharing that. Um, but... Just quickly, too, in addition to Michael Ackerman and your history with him from from Allerg or from um, Oculeve, is that Mike Faltis is also there now. Um, he's been there for a while, and he's one of the early Setpoint employees. So it's it's really a small world. Um, and also, right, yeah. if you're listening and in in search of a position, I happen to know that there's definitely some engineering hiring happening there. Good call out. Yes, Mike Faltese is someone that we also have a lot of faith in, and uh, we're lucky to recruit him. Um, you know, uh, as as someone foundational to to the technology at Setpoint as well. So it's been it's kind of fun getting the band back together there too. Yeah. So the next company then is Echo um, Juan Pablo. Tell us a bit about Echo because that's very. At the face of it, it's very tangentially different to everything that you do as a bioelectronics medicine fund um, because they focus on ultrasound, correct? So what does ultrasound have to do with, with bioelectronic medicines? Yeah, it is very different. And we're also very excited about ECHOE invested in, uh, in 2020, um, just as the pandemic was hitting and everything was shutting down and kind of nobody knew what was going on. We closed on that financing in April of 2020. Um, the you know the connection to ultrasound I think is thematic in fact across how APVC and you know is looking at bioelectronic medicines historically it's been very focused on electrical stimulation on a nerve um, to to treat a, uh, to, to to elicit an, an action potential or a neural signal uh, to treat a chronic disease that fundamentally is the same but the more we looked at Number one, the basic science that was, uh, you know, uh, coming out in the last few years, the entrepreneurial insights and the different 
forms in which people are looking to deliver energy to nerves. Um, and frankly, the benefit, the ability to do so non-invasively for certain for certain conditions, a non-invasive approach is, is really uh, crucial um, or can, can open it up to a brand new set of patients. Um, Ultrasound we're seeing increasingly used more in, uh, in in neuromodulation, and it's still early days. But as we looked at the use of ultrasound, there's obviously some limitations. One of which is that um, you know it, these are big cart-based systems, and usually inside of a hospital or or a clinic that you need to go. So so regular therapy with uh, with those is challenging. Um, they're also expensive. Uh, you know to to, to expect patients to, I mean, it's another reason why you need to go into a clinic oftentimes to get this done is you're not going to see these just uh, all over the, the place in terms of buying one at your CVS or something like that. There, we're seeing um, uh, Echo was introduced to us by a co-investor in Cala, who's also uh, Ted, Ted Katuzis from Magnetar Capital, who is also an investor in Echo. Um, and the company is developing, uh, you know, something called PMUTs, Piezo uh, micro machined uh, ultrasound technology. So it's a chip based uh, ultrasound system. And in our mind, it just opens up the, it brings the cost down, first of all, drastically to the, um, because it's a semiconductor process, it becomes. Um, so scale and, and leveraging those, that infrastructure is, is a huge advantage. Uh, you know, I think the uh, ability to envision a patient's one day wearing a patch uh, that it has a ultrasound on a chip uh, on their body at a select point that can stimulate a nerve while also, you know, potentially measuring and monitoring the nerve through the diagnostic capabilities of an ultrasound uh, device is kind of uh, a whole nother category that has real advantages. It can go deeper and target deeper nerves than uh, electrical stimulation can um, for a variety of reasons. And so for us, the investment in ECHO was very much on the basis of that uh, enabling technology for future applications. Um, and so Echo's primary uh, market and, and, and initial uh, efforts are focused on point of care handheld diagnostic ultrasound, which in and of itself is booming and has been, been validated as a, as a new and emerging uh, uh, market as of late, which will hopefully democratize access to better clinical decision-making especially with the use of ultrasound and full stack software uh, that integrates into hospitals and medical records and such, um, but also designed for kind of today's electronic, consumer electronic uh, person in mind, right? So we're all consumers as our physicians. You design something that actually looks and feels more like something uh, Apple-based, iOS-based um, at a very low price point, relatively speaking, that really does open up a whole lot of options in the space. So we're excited both, both on the primary diagnostic premise, but hopefully we see it uh, opening up a variety of new bioelectronic medicines as well. <clears throat> yeah. Ultrasound is definitely um, making its mark. I know Hubert Lim and, and his partnership with GE and some work that they're doing is, is um, providing additional exposure and validation of that. And I think that brings us to your most recent investment at Nuspera. So Nuspera, yeah, actually we invested in Nuspera back in 2016. So it's been a, a little bit, uh, has, it wasn't the most recent, but um, it's, all, it's also one that we got very excited about uh, having seen it come out of Stanford. Um, we were monitoring it closely given proximity here and, and relationships uh, to the university, but, you know, a wireless powering technology that 
uh, is really tailored for the body. And, and I think back to the original vision of GSK and bioelectronic medicines was, were these miniaturized, uh, minimally invasive uh, devices that could stimulate variety of nerves in the body, no matter how deep into the body. And, um, and potentially be done in an office setting uh, rather than in an OR setting. For so that was uh, as we looked at different wireless wireless powering technologies to do so at the time back in 2016, we got very excited about midfield powering and what uh, Alex Ye and Milton Morris were developing at the company. Um, the technology came out of Ada Poon's lab at Stanford, and you know what what we were looking for were. Obviously, to miniaturize, you know, not have, having a batteryless system uh, is is almost required, frankly, uh, to, to at the smallest scales that we're in, uh, we were envisioning, um, and you know, to do so with uh, to, to essentially go after indications where there's an existing market, but develop the technology first, take the technology risk. If you can do it, then I think you get credit for being able to place it in other in other. Uh, parts of the body, the company's first going after overactive bladder, sacral nerve stimulation, um, which, you know, companies like Medtronic, Interstim, and Axonix uh, have certainly shown is a very viable and exciting uh, growing new market. So we think the miniaturized form factor uh, really will open up, again, sort of earlier stage patients, patients that are not electing to get a full uh, cannon lead system, um, you know, and I think that's just the beginning of another sort of technology platform that will start to open up different indications and, and we're working on some of them already. So that's an exciting company as well. That's uh, the breadth of the portfolio and the way that they're intertwined, not just with previous relationships um, that brought you there, which, which seemed to be a theme that you recognized. Um, one of the things that stands out is, is APVC is the only um, firm that exclusively has been investing in bioelectronic medicine, which means that we need to define what bioelectronic medicine is. And this is always a sticky subject. I've, I've actually seen near fist fights <laughs> over this topic and with, with distinguished gentlemen too. So I'm, I'm very interested to hear your take on the definition of bioelectronic medicine. Pre formally defined as distinguished prior to the fist fight. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you know, trust me, it's a it's one that we see a lot of um, varying opinions on. And frankly, I think, you know, this may be controversial saying it. I don't really think there needs to be one definition. Frankly, I think there's so many opportunities. The, the way we define it, I'll start with, um, has especially after we've discussed ultrasound and 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 um, echo is one example that's sort of a, a tangential to traditionally what was electrical stimulation um, centric you know is is really what was earlier termed electricity as medicine we're starting to to redefine it as energy as medicine and targeted energy as medicine um, you know beyond electrical stimulation beyond ultrasound stimulation there's also electromagnetic fields across the the the, the spectrum um, that are uh, really interesting i mean optogenetics is light based you know energy that that will one day become a bioelectronic medicine and it's using light waves you know uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is on the electromagnetic spectrum that is in my view bioelectronic medicine um, you know it is uh, I don't think we need to be exclusionary at these early stages of the of the field uh, rather include include variety of energy modalities and therapeutic modalities um, you know I think 
whether or not you start to get into gray zones when you talk about is it the um, what's the primary effect coming from? Is the primary effect coming from the uh, molecular medicine, from the energy itself? And we sort of skew on the side of the energy being the key component, um, but we see drug device combinations where that's you know arguably uh, by electronic medicines in some people's views. The, the truth is it's all very exciting. It's all early innings here. And I think we just want to watch it super closely. And, you know, uh, especially with entrepreneurs that are bound to be successful and companies that are bound to be uh, disruptive, um, you know, we, we, we want to have them under the tent rather than outside just based on, you know, uh, definitions that we hold too, too strictly to. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that uh, one, Pablo. So, I think with the breadth as you covered it um, so eloquently and and also so expansively uh, a few minutes ago, um, where do you see the field going uh, in terms of of where do you see or what are can you share with us the trends and uh, you spoke about ultrasound you spoke about other aspects of it but beyond that what are the other trends and what are the other priorities maybe if you're if you have thought of that uh for your fund or things that other people um who actually want to start a vc fund or who are approaching it or who are interesting in it interested in this area should be considering yeah because i assume you want to create an ecosystem be for this particular area beyond the current players so if so what message would you like to give about the future of bioelectronic medicines yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, we are we are participants, but we're also observers in the sense that we're seeing we're reacting to a lot of the exciting new uh, findings that people are are publishing on and and, and coming up with in real time. Uh, it certainly has not gotten boring in the six years I've been at Action Potential. Uh, it's only gotten more exciting every year in terms of the types of uh, things that we're seeing and 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 what this what is materializing. Frankly, what's what's actually being being realized. Um, you know, in terms of what's where it's new and going, two things that thematically have not changed is, you know, I think uh, the advances in technology are certainly creating more and more opportunities. As we discussed with some of the portfolio companies, as we're seeing uh, in in other fields in medicine and, and healthcare, they are and, and they're not um, isolated in the sense that you know many technologies can be combined with existing or other technologies in that intersection that sort of cross-pollination people talk about you know opens up brand new companies brand new therapies for patients ways in which healthcare is delivered so technology is central still in everything we do um, and we're always monitoring sort of trading the risk reward benefit is it is the benefit you may derive by developing this new technology clinically meaningful enough to invest in it and and, and jump in early or does it need to be proven out and do we jump in later and sort of uh, that's a venture question, but technology uh, uh, innovation is, is always key. I think the other thing that is not changing and 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 will open up many new opportunities is just rigorous clinical data. Um, the you know th there are paths to market with um, safe devices, non significant risk devices that don't necessarily require a lot of clinical data, but you may get there and sort of hear crickets when you're trying to sell the product and get broad adoption and deep penetration. Um, and, and frankly, investors too are reluctant to sort of just uh, believe and, and uh, prior to seeing some level of clinical signal as well. So I think companies and teams that really invest in sort of the most rigorous trials will, will usually be rewarded. It may take slightly longer, but I think long run, that's how you build something that's um, 
that you can point to as an industry and say, listen, we've done it the right way. And, uh, and, and so, so those two things are foundational. I'd say whatever, what is new, um, we talked about sort of the ways in which, um, you know, bioelectronic medicines are being perceived by the, the world. So different specialties are now being much more receptive to uh, neuromodulation as a therapy, a therapy area. Um, and, and in many areas, it'll need to be, uh, it'll take longer. Um, you know, it, it, I think so. And I think, you know, sort of beyond those two foundational uh, areas, we're really excited about uh, the brain and what opportunities there are and some of the advanced deep brain stimulation technologies, some of those coming out of uh, groups like DARPA funded subnets, um, other companies and, you know, the ability to both determine neural circuits in the brain uh, that are, you know, for, for more complex diseases, um, but also with the ability to record and measure uh, and be flexible and adaptive. Uh, so I think the research uh, coming off of those technologies will be extremely important to, to future bioelectronic medicines. Um, and we're also, you know, seeing uh, sort of just a, a, a sea change in kind of how some wearable devices or non-invasive devices are being need to be designed for the user in mind um, because these are much more personal devices rather than something that is prescribed and surgically implanted. You know, patients are making decisions every day on how um, they they comply with their therapy, how they wear their devices, how they talk about their devices. Um, you know, and frankly, the how well they're working for them and, and, and sort of the user interface that uh, the therapy has in terms of uh, updating progress and, and, and metrics to, to patients. And that's a whole new category that I think uh, has a lot of, I think speaks very clearly to pharmaceutical companies a little bit more so than medical device companies. Um, and, and I think pairs nicely, you know, fill the gap in the spectrum of drug to implantable devices as well. So, yeah, that's, Thanks for sharing that one, Pablo. And I think that's extremely useful because I've had a few conversations with with people who are kind of wanting to kind of look at this area, but are not entirely sure and they still don't understand it. I think listening to you talk about your portfolio, where you see the future, et cetera, should probably help them a great deal as well. So that, that thank you so much for doing that. Um, now let's actually step on to the next uh, passionate topic of yours, which is the diversity and inclusion topic, um, where I think just looking at your profile, I think you've, you are a Latino man from Puerto Rico that ultimately had the chance to go to graduate school and then to some of the top schools uh, in the US, etc. And uh, talk us through one as potentially as as a non-caucasian person uh how kind of or non-english speaking person uh how you actually feel privileged to be in a position and how has that lead led you to appreciate the whole diversity and inclusion topic from your perspective yeah thanks Arun. i mean i think it's uh it's really personal to me as you mentioned for many reasons um it's, you know, I think I've, as you said, I, I'm, I'm from, uh, both my parents are from Puerto Rico. I spent the first five years of my life there, didn't speak English till I came to, you know, the U.S., lived in Massachusetts and, um, you know, was found, I think, very lucky in the sense that the, the place I grew up was very accepting of differences. I grew up in Amherst, uh, which is very sort of liberal, uh, happy, they call it the Happy Valley College Town. And, um, you know, just a broad set of, I remember kids in my elementary school from 
a big African-American population, a big Hispanic population, uh, a big Asian population. Actually, a lot of Cambodian refugees were displaced and, uh, you know, set, settled in the town I was in. And, um, you know, the, the I think that diversity instilled in me kind of a value, number one value for that environment. Uh, number two, you know, uh, sort of the desire to sort of, as I've moved to different places and seen business and how business is done and how the world works, uh, realized how rare that can be and, and how acceptance of other groups, um, you know, certainly is in this day and age is sort of as clear and, and sad as ever um, in the United States and globally. So, but I'm also extremely inspired by the potential uh, momentum that's being generated, the attention that's being paid to sort of the importance of diversity. And, and as you said, it can be diversity is clearly cut on infinite <laughs> number of dimensions. Uh, and so, yes, we talk a lot about, uh, importantly, a lot about gender diversity, eth ethnic and racial diversity. I think your point, um, do you, you know, your, your first language and do you have an accent, how we communicate, how you're perceived, um, you know, sexual diversity, sexual preference diversity. You know, there's so many ways and some are very apparent and visible and some and, and many, most are not, frankly. But the hurdle that a lot of a lot of people in our industry have faced, um, you know, is just seeing representation in the field that they're working in, where they're aspiring to to move into management roles, uh, you know, or in, in companies or in academia, into higher level tenure roles, uh, decision makers. Frankly, it sort of boils down to like, are there decision makers and are there leaders with um, with power that look and uh, look like you or represent your you know, you in some ways inspire you. It's such a simple thing we talk about with kids all the time. And I think when people see it, right, they look up to their sports idols, they look up to their music idols. Um, you know, that's not, that that's true in all facets of life and it doesn't change with age. I think you keep looking up to people everywhere you go. And so if you don't see those people, there's a problem and you're not gonna necessarily find ways to, you know, you may work your butt off and, you know, find ways to sort of check the traditional boxes, academics and, um, you know, degrees and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and that's a tried and true way that I think a lot of um, folks from uh, different backgrounds have have learned to work uh, and, and, and advance in the system. But, you know, sadly, you're also kind of um, sometimes, uh, you know, unless the boardrooms or the, uh, you know, uh, allow for you to be your true self, you're also kind of suppressing a lot of the diversity and the exciting kind of, um, innovation and, and, and novel thoughts. Um, and you have to be inviting and inclusive. I think hence the inclusion part of diversity inclusion initiatives. It's, it's not more, it's not just having a face on a web page or, a, you know, ethnic checkbox on a, on a, on a business form. It's, you know, is the culture reflective of a broad set of people? So anyway, that I'll, I'll, I'll sort of put it there because I know it's a really big topic, but, you know, for me, um, I had always, uh, wanted to do something more for my own community. I, to your point on privilege, I have felt, you know, some level of guilt historically around, um, in, in comparison to some of my Hispanic and Latino, you know, you know, brethren, the, uh, fact that I'm lighter skin, that I don't speak with, uh, uh, you know, as distinct or any real accent, frankly, based on kind of comparatively to North America, North, North, Northeasterner type, um, upbringing, 
you know, it, it has been easier for me to move into some of those rooms. It's been hard in other ways, uh, you know, but, um, you know, I felt that I wanted to create an environment and, and Latinx VC is one of those things that I helped co-found with some other venture capitalists who happen to be from uh, Spanish speaking or Latin backgrounds. Um, the, the stats are pretty abysmal, right? Like uh, Latinos in, in partnership roles at venture capital funds represent 3% of all venture capital, uh, which is you know sort of an order of magnitude off of actual general population. Um, the same is true for uh, black VCs. So we work closely with another organization called Black VC, um, and similarly about three percent. Um, these are from like a 2019 Deloitte MVCA report that I'm citing. Um, and I think gender-wise, I think it's something like female investment partners are 14 percent, but still drastically lower than you know the the general population, 50 more like 50 percent uh, to get to equity there. And this and so seeing this not just in investing roles, but in boardrooms. Obviously, there have been initiatives to increase that, and and frankly, so that there may be an opportunity for uh, ultimately management roles at these companies to be. Um, to be better represented, uh, that the initiative is meant to increase the ability to get into venture, to move up in venture once you're there, and to ultimately raise uh, your own funds or to uh, you know sort of own your your venture fund and, and be a, a, a GP. Um, and so we're taking on all those initiatives, and it's a nonprofit again that we started in 2019, um, and and you know very very hopeful that this kind of changes the the dynamic. Um, so. So you alluded to, I think you were alluding to the recent California um, legislative movement that requires California corporations to have a certain percentage of their board makeup include women um, with so many different opportunities to show diversity, whether it's skin color, um, gender, sexual orientation and preferences, all the whole gamut. How does that scale? How does, how, how do you say, okay, you have to have one woman, one Latin American person, one Asian, one, um, LGBTQ. How, how do you, how do you in, encourage that? Not a, let alone enforce it. Um, while still, um, ensuring that you have the team that works right together, and mm -hmm. and to include you know to be reflective of our overall society. Yeah, no, it's a super important question. I, I think you know, in addition to the California requirement for um, females on public company boards, there's also did I, I think, scare uh, you or did you freeze? Oh, I'm frozen. today. Do you not hear me? <laughs> All right, now Can you hear me. Yeah. Okay. So no, it's a really important question. Uh, in terms of beyond the the California mandate to require you know some percentage of or minimum number of female um, board members in public companies, I think Gavin Newsom recently announced that there will be a uh, in, in one or two years a requirement for um, also representation from underrepresented minorities uh, on the board. That's not been implemented yet, but also for public companies. I think the NASDAQ stock exchange has uh, announced its own requirements in the future as well for representation to list a company on their exchanges. So it's broader than just, you know, if you're headquartered in California, I think it's, it's expanding. And I think in order to capture all the types of diversities, obviously, 
when you're working with just the vast ways in which diversity exists, it's it's impossible to do it all. And some things are very private, right? Some people are not open about their sexual preference. And so you're not going to uh, require that that change per se, just to get representation. But, you know, I think it's, it'll have to be incremental, it'll have to be iterative, rather, it should, uh, I think, um, the truth is that people, you know, who are anti these uh, uh, policies point to the fact that, well, it's not the best people. You're now tell, you're telling highly qualified people that they shouldn't be a part of it uh, or, or they shouldn't have these roles and they should be for, foregone for somebody else to step in the role. Um, you know, the, the, I've recently been, and, and many people who've been out there looking for speakers on panels who are recruiting for companies and they're trying to make sure that they're uh, searching um, and, and finding candidates that reflect a broad set of diversity. You know, people in, especially in neuromodulation, you start like slicing the pie thinner and thinner. It's a very small set of people who have all those things. And you see the same, you know, speakers at conferences and panels. Um, and they often look the same uh, as each other, you know, uh, and, and you don't have that representation there. And the problem is it's got to start somewhere. And, and, and if you don't give people that platform, or those management experiences, or those leadership experiences, they'll never generate the, you know, expertise that then, you know, quote unquote, qualifies them um, for the role. Uh, if, if you're defining it on sort of pure track record and pure background, and not to say that there aren't highly qualified individuals, but on a population basis or on a broader macro basis, um, you need to you need to have those experiences um, to to qualify for the next ones. Hence why. So so I think. I don't know that there's one solution, but I do think um, starting, you know, and, and frankly, just to call it out, you know, there are certain groups that have just experienced much more persecution, you know, over the, over generations, over the, you know, our history, American history, uh, you know, and our global history, frankly. And, and to ignore that um, is, is, I feel is unfair. And I do think that, you know, it's one of the reasons why even Action Potential has partnered with uh, HBCU VC, which is historically black colleges and universities, uh, has a VC group that helps to mentor and hire, uh, you know, uh, students from African American and Latino backgrounds, but historically black colleges and universities in particular, it's, it's just, um, you know, stating the obvious, it's, 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 there are, there are certain groups that have experienced different types of prejudice and persecution over the years. And, you know, I don't, I don't think we can ignore it as an industry and as a society. Well, somebody's got to get the memo to the JP Morgan conference people, because I, I, I attend those not this past year, obviously, but the, you stand at the, the corners of some of the hotel floors where all of the meetings are happening and all of the, the, it's, it's, it's a sea of white old men in Xenia suits. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it is, yeah. it is the most vanilla thing I've ever seen, but but I guess to your point earlier too is that I also would want to make sure that in the hires and and recruitment that that is happening that the the successful candidates don't end up feeling like oh I got here to check a box. Yes. No. The I mean I've I've carried that in the past. I've that that sort of uh, imposter syndrome is something that you know you've heard used, but um, you know I've benefited from scholarships, you know, as an undergrad from, um, from programs out there that, that certainly acknowledge the fact that I was uh, Puerto Rican, you know, that is 
sort of, in my mind, kind of the bare minimum to just even get a, a shot sometimes, right? Like you can't compete for these roles or these opportunities without having the the merit there too and the qualifications and, and working for it, earning it. Um, but if you're not even on the list of con for consideration, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, clearly, uh, uh, you know, something that, that, um, you know, has an imbalance. I, I, I was pausing there for a second because the other thing that dawns on me every time I do speak to people who represent, whether you're a female in, in, in a leadership role, an African-American, an immigrant, uh, you know, whatever that is, you know, once you get to those leadership roles, suddenly it's incumbent on you too to now also be the spokesperson. And that's a good thing, but guess what? That draws from your time, right? Like, so you are now being, show me performance, show me, you know, uh, that you're the, that you deserve the place you've reached, but also um, find time to be the spokesperson. And because there isn't a sea of leadership, I, I find myself going back to the same female CEOs, the same, uh, you know, uh, African-American executives, the same, uh, you know, uh, Hispanic VCs to sit on panels to speak because there's a small supply of them. And so now those individuals have the added burden um, and burden I use sort of in air quotes, you know, it's also a, it's, it's also a privilege in and of itself just to, have, to attain those play, those roles, but it's sort of help educate the world, right? Like help educate people and let them see a different face to this um, while doing your day job. And it's, a, you know, and so I think that's, uh, that's something I see a lot in my peers and I see a lot in folks that are, uh, you know, spent a lot of time advocating is they're committed to this, but they're still doing society a favor by even showing up to those conversations and, and it's not for free, right, on their time and energy. So um, it's for the right reason. It's for the right cause. It's because they're passionate about it. And, but, um, but it is sort of an additional thing that those individuals have to carry. Yeah. So just to distill this, I think there are two aspects to what you were talking about. And I just I think you spoke about the second part of it a lot here. And I just want to kind of hit on one aspect of what Latinx VC is doing. So the first, as I said, there were two parts to it. The first one is providing equal opportunity. And I think, therefore, as a result of that, using that availability of opportunities to to foster capabilities and abilities and experiences, which is one aspect and through those experiences and developing those capabilities come the opportunity to fight for a meritocratic kind of assessment of personality that so that to your point about not checking the boxes because you fit into one of these one of these categories etc but you really represent the true values and the capabilities that is required in the role and as with anybody and everything people will learn on the job, but it's also about kind of developing that mindset. So, and Latinx VCs is actually doing so much in terms of kind of, um, kind of creating that, that engagement and visibility around it. Um, tell me a bit more about what it is doing to foster the capabilities and how is, uh, how are you folks at Latinx VCs kind of getting that word out and trying to excite and, and invigorate the the younger population from these Latinx and, and Black communities, et cetera, through the efforts. Uh, that'll be good for people to actually hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the excitement part, we don't have to do too much for, uh, you know, they're frankly just looking at media and skyrocketing tech companies and, and life science companies, 
you know, there is awareness when, when college students are thinking about career paths, you know, how do I get involved with those exciting companies rather than maybe a more traditional uh, established path to in, through academia or through Fortune 500 companies, but um, how do I get part of the venture and entrepreneurial ecosystem? So I think that excitement is there. What's lacking is the understanding of it, the knowledge. It's pretty opaque uh, industry. It's very, uh, it's, it's cottage sort of industry. It's also kind of one where apprenticeship is how it's taught, is how you learn um, rather than, you know, learning it out of a textbook. And so it's, it's, hard, it's, it's also highly relationship-based and network-based. So if you if you need to understand, I mean, the things that we think about at Latin XVC is really educating um, uh, aspiring VCs as to w what it is that venture capital is and does and how you do it well and the language that's spoken and what is valued and, 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 and sort of um, what, how to build that with time rather than saying, hey, I'm going to read a job description and go interview tomorrow for this role. Uh, these networks and these relationships and this industry knowledge has to be, you know, established over years, frankly, uh, before you can add value to a, a, a group. Um, and so we're trying to make that an earlier and earlier stage thing. Um, you know, if you if you grew up in a country club, if you grew up with parents who were investment bankers, you've been talking about this stuff at a dinner table since you were six and eight, nine years old. Uh, most people haven't. Most people aren't. And so I think we're just trying to introduce um, you know, awareness and education. Um, after that, you know, there is, we're, so we're doing programs uh, and, and rolling much of that out in 2020 to, uh, to, to, to you know, via, via uh, applicant pools, fellowships, um, you know, uh, web content and so forth. And we're partnering with a lot of other groups that are doing a lot of this stuff too, to sort of leverage their resources. Um, you know, we are, once you're in venture capital, it's not a, a it's 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 actually oftentimes an up and out system like in some other fields where you get sort of a two or three year run at an entry level role and you're oftentimes then not looking for your next gig whether that's in venture capital or something else um but even an internship can help you get that foot in the door right internships are oftentimes the way that it's an extended interview uh so if you can get that internship and show that you have some venture knowledge uh so that the people hiring you next don't feel like they need to teach you from scratch uh that's a big deal and um, and and that promotion uh, from uh, analyst or associate to principal, vice president, partner um, is a big leap because it's I think in the ability in terms of the ability to uh, lead deals, sit on boards, and so forth uh, that that requires exposure. Um, and and so we're also trying to help those existing venture capitalists. Uh, Deter, you know, sort of prioritize and, and, and make sure that they understand kind of the important things that'll get them at least a shot to be promoted at their firm. Sometimes this, the cards uh, aren't stacked in their favor at a particular venture fund, but uh, prepare yourself so that, you know, the next opportunity, even for me, right, I was a um, senior associate at Morgan Thaler. I was promoted to vice president at Lightstone, um, but I became a partner and was able to lead deals and write checks when I got to action potential. Um, and that track record that you build as a partner, then sticks with you and uh, opens up doors for for the future so um so it is about that growth and the educational process uh and then lastly raising your own fund and relationships with lps um and you know i think there too there's uh it's a different marketplace right now you're talking to a different set of investors and there's equally um you know i, I think a, a lack of qualified GPs with track record uh, from certain backgrounds. And so 
how do you form those relationships early and how do you put yourself in the best position to be able to um, then be sort of your own boss uh, at, at your own fund and, and um, generate wealth and become an example for future VCs as well. So you can, you know, have that impact. That's more uh, lasting impact. Yeah, that's thank you so much for outlining that in a very detailed manner. And if anybody listening here want to kind of learn more about the Latinx VC initiative, please visit their website. It's latinxvcs.com uh, or latinxvcs.com. Uh, and uh, I think it looks like you actually have quite a bit of uh, engagement sessions and building the awareness and providing the opportunities for, for the community here. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be very much interested. So, but I just want to also... Uh, one other theme that actually came as you were just talking, I think APVC as a fund is not just pioneering bioelectronic medicine investments. They're also pioneering diversity and inclusion. And I think you did not speak about that explicitly on this uh, podcast here, Juan Pablo, but let me just list out so that people actually understand that that you folks are actually walking the talk in a way. Uh, you are a Latino um, Imran is of uh, is from Canada, but he's of Pakistani origin. So there is a diversity right there. Then Juan, who is your other colleague, is also a Latino. So the three folks who are actually leading the investments uh, and as as partners and associate in one are 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 all kind of folks from from kind of d- different backgrounds, and therefore diversity comes into play. And then you also have some very interesting, and again, speaking about meritocracy, people have actually built their capabilities over time. We spoke of Kate Rosenbluth at uh, the founding CEO of Cala Health, the current CSO there, Milton Morris, uh, who was at Levanova, and ultimately the CEO of Newspera, uh, Nadim Yared, who is the CEO of CVRX, who is an immigrant um, to the country and who has done fantastically well in the past and, and currently is doing a great job at CBRX. Um, Sandeep Akaraju at, at Echo. And uh, I think those are just examples. Murthy at set point as well. Murthy at set point as well. Correct. Exactly. So, and, 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 and Murthy Simambatla at set point CEO as well. So all of those are great examples of, of APVC kind of, I think it not all of it is by design. I think a lot of it is coincidence, but at the same time, it's also about, hearing and being heard and giving focus to the meritocracy there and it does not discriminate between whether it's being brought by a person of a certain type of origin and basically listening to the idea so therefore ideas are valuable it does not matter where they come from i think apvc's investments is a is a classic example of that so thank you so much for sharing that with us and uh, i think people i hope they take a, a look at this episode, listen to everything that you've actually had to say, uh, because there are some very practical ways in which um, all of you at APVC have kind of included all of these uh, tenets in your in your day-to-day life. Uh, thank you so much, Juan Pablo, for joining us. And also, thank you for, for just delivering some honest answers. It's really easy to talk about these things in very clinical terms, that um, because people are, are afraid of offending anyone ever. Um, so I appreciate the honesty. Um, you said something in, in one of our previous discussions that I, I think is a great way to close, which is you said, don't just talk about it. You got to hire somebody, mentor somebody, or spotlight somebody. And I think you do a really good job of doing all three. So um, 
thanks for coming on and thanks for your time. Yeah, no, thank you both very much. And thanks for you two spotlighting it. And, um, you know, honestly, I know even in one of our previous conversations too, we talked a little bit about the representation in clinical trials and neuromodulation studies. There was actually uh, a nice session in uh, day one of the NANS conference this year, which talked about uh, women and minority representation in neuromodulation, both in clinical trials, but actually also in real world adoption. So I urge people to take a look from this industry uh, at that session as well, which I think has some, you know, pretty compelling data and shows the stark uh, contrast there and in, in accessibility of some of these new therapies. So I think it'll, it, it flows uh, down and, and, you know, our efforts here and your efforts as well, I think will pay off uh, in the long run. So I'm, I'm thankful to be on the show, thankful to be part of uh, this conversation and, and this industry and, you know, hoping uh, to, to have more stuff to talk about down the line on scraps. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks. The clips are officially owned and is a property of Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Blatt. No reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission. Sainthan Chandran was the editor and our soundtrack was by Acetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of Scraps, which is just Sparks, spelled backwards. It really is that simple to remember. Yeah, 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 yeah.